Chapter Seven of the Man Eater by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Seven. When daylight broke upon the village from which Virginia had escaped, it found Taylor and Kelly, shaken but sobered, preparing to set out in search of Virginia. In the jungle outside the palisade, they had buried the torn remains of what had once been William Gooch, and then they gathered their men together and set forth upon the trail of the girl. Spreading out in a great circle, two or three together, they beat the jungle in all directions. Chance led the two whites with a handful of men toward the west, and a shred of torn khaki clinging to a thorn bush put one of the natives upon her trail. After that it was easy, and the party made rapid progress in the wake of the fleeting girl. Into the west, another camp was astir. Breakfast was served and disposed of, and Dick Gordon, humming, It's nice to get up in the morning, shouldered a light sporting rifle, and with his gun bearer at his heels with his express, set out along the coastward trail ahead of his safari. The day was beautiful. Gordon was happy. Broadway held more pitfalls than the jungle. His was but a happy, carefree jaunt to the coast. He was already commencing to feel sorry that his quest was over and his outing past its zenith. Back to the humdrum of civilization. He shrugged disgustedly. Not an untoward occurrence upon the entire trip. The monotony of New York had followed him into the wilds of Africa. He had been born evidently to the commonplace. Adventure shunned him. And then, directly ahead and so close that it sounded shrill upon his ears, rose the scream of a terrified woman. Gordon leapt forward at a rapid run. In a dozen paces he broke from the jungle in a small clearing to a sight which surprised him no less than it would the presence of a Numidian lion loose upon Fifth Avenue. He saw first a disheveled white girl clothed in torn khaki, her hair loosened and fallen about her shoulders. In her hand was a broken branch, and snarling about her was a huge hyena, closing in, ready to charge. Before either the girl or the beast realized that a new factor had been precipitated into their encounter, Gordon had thrown his rifle to his shoulder and fired just as the hyena charged. With a yelp of agony, the hideous creature tumbled over and over almost to the girl's feet, and as it came to rest, two more bullets pinged into its carcass, finishing it forever. Gordon had run forward, stopping only momentarily to fire, and an instant after his last shot he stood before the girl, looking down at her with astonishment and incredulity written large upon his countenance. She looked up at him in equal astonishment. He saw her reel, and dropping his rifle, steadied her with his arm. "'In the name of all that is holy,' he said, "'who are you, and what are you doing here alone in the jungle?' "'You are Mr. Gordon.' He nodded. "'Yes, my name is Gordon. But how the—' "'How in the world did you know that, and who are you?' "'I am Virginia Scott,' she replied. She was still trembling and unstrung. It was with difficulty that she composed herself sufficiently to answer him coherently." Gordon's eyes went wide at the disclosure of her identity. "'Miss Scott!' he exclaimed. "'What brought you here? Didn't your mother get my letter telling her that I would bring her the papers from the old mission?' "'Yes,' she explained. "'But another saw your letter first. Scott Taylor, my mother's cousin. And he set out after you to—' "'Oh, it's terrible, Mr. Gordon. He has followed you to kill you.' "'He was the other heir?' Virginia nodded. "'And you have taken these frightful chances to warn me?' he asked. There was no other way, she replied. He questioned her further, and bit by bit wrung from her the whole terrible story of the ordeals through which she had passed. And she has done all this for the sake of a stranger, he thought. What a girl! He had been watching her closely as she talked, and he found it difficult to take his eyes from her face. It was a very beautiful face. Even the grime and the dirt and the scratches could not conceal that fact. You have done a very wonderful thing, Miss Scott, he said, a very brave and wonderful and foolish thing. I thank God that I found you in time. I shudder to think what your fate would have been had chance not led us together at the right moment. 
As they talked, another party came to the edge of the clearing upon its eastern verge, came and halted at the sight disclosed before their eyes. It was Taylor, Kelly, and their blacks. They had heard the shot and hurried forward, but cautiously, as they were sure Virginia was not armed. When Taylor saw the girl and Scott together, he saw the end of all his hopes. Unless. His eyes narrowed as the suggestion forced itself upon him. Here were these two who stood alone between him and fortune. Two shots would put them from his path forever. Should either ever reach civilization again, Scott Taylor would become an outcast. The story of his villainy would make him a marked man in the haunts he best loved. Never again could he return to Broadway. Gordon's back was toward him. The girl's eyes were hidden from him by the man's broad shoulders. Taylor stepped from behind the tree that had concealed him. He took careful aim at his first victim, the man. And at that moment Gordon shifted his position, and Virginia's horrified eyes took in the menace at his back. It was too late to warn him. There was but a single chance to save him. There was no sign in her expression that she had discovered Taylor. He was readjusting his aim to the changed position of his target, and he was taking his time about it, too, for he could not afford to bungle or to miss. At Gordon's belt swung his revolver. Virginia was so close she could touch him by crooking an elbow. She did not have to take a step closer, and it was the work of but a second to whip the revolver from its holster, swing it upon Scott Taylor, and pull the trigger. At the report, Gordon wheeled in surprise toward the direction the girl had fired. He saw a white man drop a rifle and stagger out of sight behind a tree, and then the girl grasped him by the arm and drew him behind the tree beneath the branches of which they had met. It was Taylor, she whispered. He had leveled his rifle at you. He would have shot you in the back, the cur. I thought, said Dick Gordon in a wondering voice, that I owed you about all that a man could owe to a fellow being, but now you have still further added to my debt. You owe me nothing. The obligation is still all upon the side of my mother and myself, replied Virginia. But if you want to add a thousandfold to that obligation, I can tell you how you can do it. How? asked Gordon eagerly. By getting me and yourself out of this hideous country and back to America as quickly as can be. Good, cried Gordon. We'll start in just a minute. But first I'm going after that human Mephitis and put him where he won't shoot any more at a man's back or bother women. And calling to his men, who were now coming up, he started across the clearing in pursuit of Taylor. That worthy, however, eluded him. Wounded in the forearm, he had scurried into the jungle half-supported, half-dragged by Kelly, who, while feeling no loyalty toward his leader, shrank with terror from the thought of being left alone to the mercies of the blacks in the center of Africa. The reward he had about given up with the sight of Gordon and the girl together, for which Gooch dead and Taylor wounded, it seemed practically hopeless to expect to prevent Gordon and Virginia returning to America. Kelly knew that he couldn't do it alone, nor would he try. He could knife a man in the back with ease, but a look at Gordon had assured him that it would not be profitable employment to attempt to get near enough to that athletic and competent-looking young man to reach him with a knife. No, Kelly was through, insofar as further attempts at crime in his present surroundings were concerned. Get him back to the good old U.S., he urged Taylor, and I'll agree to help you. But Africa? Never again. And he raised his right hand solemnly above his head. Taylor smiled ironically. Yes, get him back to the good old U.S., he mimicked. They'll go back of themselves fast enough, you boob, without any help from us and they'll make little old U.S. so damn hot that it won't hold us. If that cat hadn't pinked me, I'd stop him before ever they reached the coast. But, and he winced with pain, I'm all in for a while. But by God, I'll follow them to the States and get them there. There can't anyone put anything over on me like this. They can't rob me of what's mine by right, even if it isn't mine by law, and I'll show them. I'll show them. Virginia was giving the native village of her adventures a wide berth but Gordon assured her that they must pass it on the trail to the coast, 
and that he was rather anxious to do so and interview the chief. The tone of voice in which he stated his determination filled Virginia with alarm, and she made him promise that he would do nothing to arouse the wrath of the natives, but pass the village they did, and much to their surprise the first people they saw emerging from the gates to meet them were several white men. They proved to be a party of wild animal collectors coming down from an excursion toward the north. In sturdy cages they bore several young lions, a few leopards, hyenas, and other specimens of the fauna of the district through which they passed. Now they were on their way to the coast, but the stories they had heard of the wonderful black-maned lion that had terrorized the village and killed a white man there the night before had determined them to stop long enough to attempt to capture the splendid beast. Gordon and Virginia tarried with them but a few minutes, then continued their way to the coast, which they reached without incident after what was, to Gordon at least, the pleasantest journey of his life. Had it not been for the anxiety which he knew the girl's mother must be suffering on account of her mad escapade, he would have found means to prolong the journey many days. At the coast they found that they would have to wait a week for a steamer, and having cabled Mrs. Scott that Virginia was safe under his care, Gordon felt at liberty to rejoice that they had made reasonably good connections. It might have been worse. Chance might have brought them to the coast only a day ahead of the steamer. Gordon, unspoiled by wealth and attentions and scheming mamas, lacked sufficient egotism to think that Virginia Scott might be attracted to him as he was to her. There had been other girls who he had known desired him, but he had not cared for. Very soon after he had met Virginia, he had realized that here at last, in the wilds of Africa, he had found the one girl, the only girl, and straightway he had set her upon a pedestal and worshipped silently from afar. To think that this deity might stoop to love a mortal did not occur to him, and, strange to say, he was content to love her without declaring his love. But that was while he had been alone and all to himself. How it would be when she was returned to the haunts of other eligible men did not occur to him. Very adroitly, at least he thought it was adroitly accomplished, he discovered from her own lips that she was not engaged, and thereafter his bliss knew no bounds. It had been difficult for Virginia to repress a smile during the ponderous strategy with which he maneuvered the information from her, and also it had been his first intimation that Richard Gordon might care for her. It troubled her, too, not a little, for Virginia Scott was not a young lady to throw her heart lightly into the keeping of the first good-looking young man who coveted it. That she liked Gordon immensely she would have readily admitted but she had given no thought to a deeper interest, nor but for the suggestion the young man blunderingly put into her head might such a thought have occurred to her, at least not so soon. But the idea, implanted, became food for considerable speculation, with the result that she now often discovered herself appraising Gordon in a most critical manner. As though, she mused, he were a six-cylinder limousine, and I wanted to be sure that I liked the upholstery, which I do, but there's something wrong with his sparking device, and Virginia laughed softly to herself. "'What's the joke?' asked Gordon, sitting beside her on a hotel veranda. "'Oh, nothing, just thinking,' replied Virginia evasively. But she turned her face away to hide a guilty flush, and as she did so her eyes alighted upon the head of a long column marching into the town. "'Oh, look!' she exclaimed, glad of any pretext to change the line of thought. "'Who do you suppose it can be?' Gordon looked in the direction she indicated, rose and walked to the end of the veranda, and then called back over his shoulder. "'They're the collectors!' I wonder if they got their man-eater. Virginia was at his side now, and at her suggestion the two walked down the street to meet the incoming caravan. The collectors were delighted to see them again, and in response to Gordon's inquiry pointed to a stout cage in the middle of the long line. There he is, said one of them, and he's a devil. Gordon and the girl dropped back to have a look at the latest capture, finding a huge black-maned lion crouching in the narrow confines of his prison. His yellow eyes glared balefully out at them. His tail moved restlessly in angry jerks, 
and his bristling muzzle was wrinkled into a perpetual snarl that bared long, ugly-looking fangs. "'He does look like a devil, doesn't he?' remarked Gordon. A crowd was gathering about the cage now, and as one approached more closely than his majesty thought proper, he leapt to his feet and dashed madly against the bars, roaring loudly and clawing viciously in an attempt to reach the presumptuous mortal, who shrank back in terror, much to the amusement of the onlookers. "'What a beauty!' exclaimed Virginia. Gordon was looking very closely at the lion, and instead of replying, moved forward nearer the cage. The lion growled savagely, hurling himself against the bars, and then Gordon stopped quite close to him. The beast stopped suddenly and eyed the man in silence. A look, almost of human recognition, changed the expression on his face. He growled, but no longer angrily, a growl of friendly greeting Gordon could have sworn. "'I thought as much,' said the man, turning toward Virginia and one of the collectors at his back. "'See that jagged scar on the inside of his forearm there?' he asked. The collector nodded. "'This is the fellow that I liberated from the pit,' continued Gordon, "'and he remembers me.' "'Well, I shouldn't bank too strongly on his gratitude if I were you,' warned the collector. "'No, I don't intend to,' laughed Gordon. Two days later, Virginia Scott and Richard Gordon took passage upon a northbound steamer, and among the other passengers and cargo were the collector and their wild beasts. For several days after receiving his wound, Taylor was down with fever. But the moment he could travel, he and Kelly set off on their return to the coast. The former bent now upon carrying his felonious designs to a successful conclusion, even if he had to rob and murder Gordon in the heart of New York. The man was desperate. His expedition had cost him all the money he could beg, borrow, or steal. He owed Kelly not alone the promised reward, but several hundred dollars in cash that the latter had advanced toward the financing of the work. He must have money. He must have a lot of it. And he was determined to get it. Never in his life had Scott Taylor been so dangerous an enemy, and in this state of mind he and Kelly caught the steamer following that upon which Virginia and Gordon had sailed. Gordon whiled away the hours of the voyage, when he could not be in Virginia's company, before the cage of the great lion. No one else could approach the beast with the possible exception of Virginia Scott, whom the animal seemed to tolerate so long as Gordon was near. Toward all others the tawny man-eater evinced the most frightful rage, but when Gordon approached he became docile as a kitten permitting the American to reach inside the bars and scratch his massive, wrinkled face. At Liverpool, Gordon bade farewell to his savage jungle friend, for he and Virginia were to take the fast liner from New York, the collectors following upon a slower vessel. "'Good-bye, old man,' said Gordon, parting, stroking the mighty muzzle. "'The chances are we'll never see each other again, and I'll never forget you, especially as I most vividly recall you as you stood over me there in the jungle, debating the question of your savage jungle ethics.' while gratitude and appetite battled within your breast. And see that you don't forget me, though you will, of course, within a month. The lion rumbled in his throat and rubbed his head luxuriously against the bars as close to the man as he can get. And thus Gordon left him. Within a few days the huge beast was sold to a traveling American circus, where he was presently exhibited to wondering crowds. Ben, king of beasts, the man-eating lion from the wilds of Central Africa. He roared and ramped and struggled for liberty for days, but at last he seemed to realize the futility of his efforts, and subsided into a sullen quiet which rendered his keepers even more apprehensive than had his open rebellion. "'He's an ugly one,' commented the big Irishman whose special charge Ben was, and deep, too. He'll get some fun yet. Yeah, you can never trust these forest bread critters. They're all alike. Only Ben, he's worse.'" End of chapter 7